your naming of, of the invitational aspect of my work is really the critical piece here. It is an invitation into seeing more of what is there to be seen about race in all of our lives. And that is a very, very specific kind of inquiry for all of us. Welcome to the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm your host, David Trelevin, author of the book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness. And the goal of this podcast is to offer interviews that deepen our understanding about the relationship between mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. My guest today is Rhonda McGee, a mindfulness teacher, law professor, and someone doing powerful work at the intersection of mindfulness and trauma. Rhonda has focused her work primarily in the area of racial justice, connecting dots between identity, historical trauma, meditation, and healing. And at a time where conversations around race can lead to polarization, I see Rhonda as someone who threads the needle between what she calls compassion and truth-telling. This interview covered a lot of ground about mindfulness, trauma, and racism, and my hope is that it will support ongoing dialogue on the topic. Rhonda is a former president of the board of the Center for Contemplative Mind in Society, and currently the chair of the board of directors for the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute at Google. She's also author of the book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness, which is available this fall. So without further ado, I bring you Rhonda McGee. Hi, Rhonda. Hey, David. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Really glad that you could join me. And mm, thank you so much. It's good to be with you. So I wanted to start with your book. Um, congratulations on your book. Uh, it comes out, when does it come out? September 17th. Wow. 2019. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start by talking about your general, um, just what you're up to mm -hmm. in the book. And uh, one of the ways that I feel like you were talking about the inner work of racial justice is around racial justice work really as an aspect of mindfulness practice. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a little bit about the ways that you'd see racial justice work as actually being part of mindfulness and meditation, especially for someone who might say, well, you know, I can't, I, I'm not sure how this would relate to me or my practice. And I'd love to just have you talk about that mm. as a way to start. Mm, great. Thanks. <clears throat> so I guess I might start by talking a little bit about what I mean by racial justice. Um, obviously, um, that can be, that's a term that can be thought of in many different ways, more or less technical. Uh, for our purposes here, I'll just sort of describe some of the aspects of justice work that I think are most salient for me. Um, one piece is um, really making amends for some harm that's been done. And so if you think about uh, justice as um, a term that we use to, to try to point toward any of a number of different ways we might um, seek to make amends for harm done. And the multidimensionality of that, there might be personal things that we as individuals might do to try to uh, right some sort of wrong that we feel we're personally in some ways responsible for. Um, there might be, uh, let's say, uh, work that we want to do in the world in 
um, more or less systemic ways, more or less formal ways. So I'm a law professor, and of course, I am therefore intimately involved in the formal institutional ways in which we seek to create avenues for um, naming uh, a, a harm that's related to race and racism, um, structuring some kind of means for redress, um, using that process and practice to kind of establish new norms for how we relate and, and interact with each other to minimize harm going forward. So we have these formal systems, we call it anti-discrimination law. We invite um, people to, to you know, engage with that system as one way, one way that we might um, instantiate or identify something called a kind of justice in the world around these issues. But for me, that's a, if we think of justice in only that systemic sense as a maybe overly limited way of thinking about the concept, more philosophically and broadly to really be engaged in questions of right and wrong and how to respond to those things. And questions of right and wrong when it comes to this issue of, of racism, which is for me, you know, again, an opportunity to deeply reflect on how uh, systems of uh, inclusion and exclusion, ultimately systems of oppression, have been mm, structured, uh, raised up, defined, um, perpetuated over many, many generations uh, using the notion and idea and various ideas around race as a way of doing that. So for me, racism really is, um, is really at the core of really responding to racism, addressing racism, naming it, seeing it, seeing how it shows up in in the many different ways it may in our in our world um that's at the core of racial justice work and so um while there are ways that our formal system seeks to engage with that there's so much that we as individuals can do that we um on our own can do to look at what's what uh, are the ways that we have imbibed notions and trainings around racism um, ways that we as individuals might be, if you will, um, personally um, engaged in what I call sort of social practices, right? Um, practice being a word that I also use in the mindfulness space, but in this sort of sociology of race and racism space, there are social practices that we engage in um, that um, consciously or not, intentionally or not, um, contribute to um, the ongoing manifestations of bias and the maldistribution of power that are the legacies of of racism in our time, in our world. So given that it's this multidimensional notion, right, given that it involves us as individuals maybe having some responsibility for seeing more clearly our role uh, in um minimizing racism and the harms of racial injustice, but also um, working within ourselves to heal some of the ways that we have been wounded so that, that the reverberations of our own wounding won't contribute to more harm. So there's so many different ways that we as individuals then can be invited into um, work that I consider to be part and parcel of racial justice work, the personal piece, the interpersonal piece. And from those places of engagement 
the kind of tender places of engagement around our own wounding, our own responsibility, form projects through which in that more formal legal sense or uh, other uh, communal and collective ways in our communities, in our organizations, in our workplaces, we might as well um, be about the business of making amends around racial injustice. Mm -hmm. I think of you, one reason I appreciate you is I think of you as a systems thinker. And you're someone who also seems like you built a lot of bridges. Mm -hmm. Um, Here you are, faculty in law who's making bridges to mindfulness towards racial justice work. And one of the images when I was reading through your book was um, of almost almost a triangle. And the, some of the main areas I see you bringing together are one, racial justice, which you just defined, mindfulness and mindfulness practice and all that that entails, and then also trauma, which I think is part of our connection. And I see you making bridges and arrows between it's not just a book on racial justice it's really a book on racial justice mindfulness and you're also talking about trauma at different times so can you talk about i don't know if that um visual works for you but Mm -hmm. can you talk about almost like where do you see the arrows or the bridges and are the arrows going Mm -hmm. in one direction both directions i'm curious how you Mm -hmm. see them all um working together (laughs) oh i love this imagery um and and i appreciate you seeing the yeah the way in which Mm, I am, you know, guilty, if you will, of systemic thinking, but also um, interdisciplinary and inter, um, you know, sort of bringing together lots of different practices and modalities. Um, I came into law with a background in sociology. And so um, looking at how our society structures um, harm, and the different ways we might respond to it. Um, in fact, my master's degree work in sociology and was on the road to a doctorate when I switched into law. Um, it was all focused on how people resolve conflict. So um, there are many different types of conflict, but you know, conflict, if you will, is one of the ways that we get into this conversation about race and racism. We look at its social manifestations, what are the consequences of ideologies around racism, what are the consequences of practices for maldistribution of resources, right, that, that bear the stamp of, 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 of racism and, and bias. Um, conflicts arise. And so um, one doorway, it, conflicts arise and, and harm happens as a result. So one way that I think about uh, racial harm is really um, to, to invite a deep reflection, and this is where mindfulness can come in, but really looking at what is that, ki- that particular kind of suffering that results from racism in the world. Um, and again, my, I see racial harm and racial injury as a part and parcel and intersecting constantly and profoundly with all of so many different um, social um, sort of uh, dynamics and identities and vectors of oppression. So while I'm speaking about race, really for me this is one um, uh, aspect of a, a broader social justice look, right? We're really looking at um, how socially mediated harm happens. And there's so many different inputs to that. And one of the reasons why I focus on race is because it's one area that many people have a hard time staying with. 
it's for a variety of reasons that we can talk about. So just to create space for just as best we can, as best we can, because it's really perhaps impossible to, to, to in, entirely do, but as best we can to kind of really isolate and identify and talk about what race is doing in a, in a conflict scenario, how race and racism um, are causing harm and, and injury and the kind of injury and harm that can be seen through the lens and, and, and language of trauma, right? Long-standing um, harm that uh, leaves uh, references in the body uh, over time. So for me, we've got this social thing that's been created around race and um, as a as a means, I think, frankly, of structuring um, uh, privilege and oppression uh, by reference to differently colored and shaped uh, bodies. Um, and it's been a profound, race and racism have had, as we all know, profound consequences in our world. And those consequences include many, many different types of harm. And so, so we've got this complex of race and racism, which uh, is about many different things, but its consequences include suffering. And this is how the language around mindfulness, if you will, it can be bridged into this. With mindfulness, we are trained and really uh, training always um, in how we relate to experience. We're working to be more able to become present to what is, um, to uh, turn toward rather than away from um, all aspects or to be able to turn toward all and any aspect of experience with a kind of robustness, a kind of resilience, a kind of openness to, to, to working with it in what I would consider to be kind of life-affirming ways. That to me is a way of thinking about what mindfulness is. Being present, being um, capable of relating with what is in, in ways that affirm life and enable um, us to go on. And so for me, uh, it certainly it is about, has been about relieving some forms of suffering. And in the mindfulness world, traditionally reliant on um, some notions of, of Buddhism, but not only that, one way of thinking about suffering really is about identifying the three, you might call psychological um, dynamics that, that can lead to personal suffering. So ways that we attach to things that aren't always impermanent, ways that we resist or push away or avoid things that are inevitably kind of present and in our midst or ways that we are um, ignorant or confused about what's going on. So those kinds of individual psychological dynamics that traditionally in mindfulness un underpin a lot of what it is that we're trying to um, make ourselves more aware of and help ourselves mm, relate with better and, and not, you know, not get stuck around. <laughs> um, all of that can show up around race, right? Race and racism can be about hyper attachment to notions of who I am versus who you are and ways that my training about who I am is tied to notions, ideas about race 
that um, tell some stories that I hold about myself that have implications for stories I hold about you as a person who is racialized different, you know, um, formed in a way that's different. Those attachments to stories, those avoidant, like I don't, the, the avoidance move, the way of I don't want to hear about your story or I don't want to, um, the different ways that we can get caught, mm-hmm. right, um, are, are the sorts of things that mindfulness can help us work with. Mm-hmm. And so that, again, and, it, and yet, uh, because traditionally mindfulness has not necessarily been seen as a doorway into conversations about race, there are many ways that um, that uh, the mindfulness practices, if you will, have not traditionally been brought to bear specifically on these questions about race and racism. Which, I mean, that feels like that's part of what you're really forwarding in your work right now, yeah. is what will it mean to um, actually be working with those practices through through the in, inside the domains that you're talking about and i'm actually wondering if you could unpack or, or whether there's any stories for you mm-hmm. about the ways that mindfulness and mindfulness practices ended up helping a person or a group really do some powerful work and you and i have talked about this but you know part of where um part of where i've been exploring mindfulness practices around trauma work is where does it increase our capacity to show up for what's too much internally or it could be externally as well. And I know you work with a lot of groups mm-hmm. and um, yeah. I'm wondering if you have any, any examples of ways that you saw, you know, the, the, pra- the practice that you're offering on mindfulness really be with some of the tangle mm-hmm. and the complexity that you're, that you're naming. Yeah. Thank you for asking for that specificity. And one thing that's coming up amongst the many thousands of conversations and engagements I've had over the years, actually, is an example of um, working with a group of mindfulness teachers in training. Right, so trainees, if you will, people who were um, you know, engaged in a whole program of deepening their capacity to deliver and uh, invite people into mindfulness. And I... Uh, was invited in as I have had the privilege of being invited in um, not infrequently in the last few years into teacher training programs to assist um, those who are on the on that path with a way of seeing well first of all working with their own notions around race and racism and thereby enabling them ideally to be able to support others and so in one of these engagements um I really just opened up with uh, a conversation and kind of an interpersonal mindfulness practice in this circle, large group of 50, 60 people by inviting us to, to kind of, you know, first do a little bit of practice involving just sitting and um, the basic, often the things that I do begin with basic core mindfulness meditation practice of coming into the body in the present moment, right? So just coming into a room, into a space with intentionality, feeling the body in this place, the ground of support beneath us. So really having those kind of presencing practices being at the, at the heart and the root of the work that I do. And from there, inviting some inquiry that can allow us in the moment to turn right toward 
an experience of um, how it is that race and racism um, mm, uh, show up for us or um, our concepts that we enact in the world, even when we're not conscious of it, concepts that we help participate in making or unmaking. So bringing consciousness to that by, in this particular instance, really just saying, uh, I want to invite reflection on what happens when you are invited into uh, a conversation about race or racism, what happens when someone wants to talk to you about um, an experience of race or racism that they've witnessed. What comes up for you? Have you yourself such experiences? Um, if not, um, what happens when others want to share those experiences with you? So we sat, and um, part of what I do is create space. And, you know, I do think, because I think actually all of us have some experience that's relevant here. As, you know, what, especially, let's say, if we're in a North American context, um, in the United States, um, frankly, in most parts of the world, whether our ways of thinking about this concept are exactly the same. Uh, there is some way in which something called race has been a part of our acculturation. And again, there are differences but that are, that are unique to place and time. And so it's always important to sort of name that. But in this particular instance that I'm thinking of, we were here in the United States in Southern California, and we invite this question, what comes up for you when invited? And we pause, and we allow people to, to sort of sit with what's happening in the body right now, um, what stories are coming up for you, what images, what emotions. And a person uh, raised uh, his hand. This is a cisgendered, uh, white racialized man um, who raised his hand to say, well, I consider myself to be a race traitor. And so I, you know, resist any efforts to bring white supremacy I, I want to deconstruct and eradicate whiteness. And so um, he had a lot to say, but we kind of, that was a, sort of the gist of an opening of that. And for me, it was an opportunity to sort of let him, as a member of the circle, put something into the space and then have us pause and invite people to reflect on what was arising as a result of that. I should say the space was predominantly white racialized people, um, which is not infrequently the case when we're doing mindfulness-related training. Um, and yet there were some minority, as a percentage uh, in the room, who were identified or would identify as people of color of various genders. And so um, pausing. What happens? What happens even right now in this conversation when I name white supremacy, um, race traitor, deconstructing, eradicating whiteness? These are terms, and this is a, these are language. This is language that um, comes from a place emotionally in the body, as all language does. And so, what I invite is a reflection on what happens in our own bodies when we when we speak about such things and when we hear such about such things in a space and I invited it in that room and in that moment and there was a lot 
that was going on, a lot of people started to name discomfort. First of all, curiosity and question, what is race trader? Did you, are you saying trader, T-R-A-D-E-R or traitor? What, you know, so there was a lot of like trying to understand, but also what's happening in the body. Um, where's the question, where are the questions coming from? What's the emotion behind the questions? Um, if the question is living in a place in the body, can you name that? Um, what's again, um, are, are there stories that are coming up or images coming up as you hear these terms? And if so, what do they look like? What's the emotionality around that? So just creating space for th- naming and recognizing thoughts, emotions, and sensations that are traveling with and into conversations about race. And um, any one of us can be a vehicle for that. Any story can be a vehicle for that. This particular gentleman's statements created that opportunity. And then people were just naming all sorts of things that were coming up in response. And you can, as you can imagine, we gave it about an hour and a half. And there were many different ways that uh, people um, were, through that process, becoming more conscious of uh, assumptions, um, uh, habits and patterns, conditioned ways of responding, turning away from conversations like this, turning toward with certain kinds of habit energies. All of that was um, brought into a more conscious um, recognition and, um, and, you know, and thereby we all had an opportunity to see things a little bit more clearly about it as a prelude perhaps to doing deeper work. It makes me think about rooms I've been in the last couple years, in particular, I think, with Trump and just this po- particular political moment that when what I hear you talking about is people growing their capacity to be with what was already just under the surface. And this was my experience coming to the U.S. from Canada, is that there was just always this felt feeling that just beneath the surface was a conversation that was wanting to happen around race and racism and this um, initial wound in the country around slavery that continues in many ways. It's so, it's just so charged in any rooms I'm in, including, yeah, yeah including the um, trauma sensitive mindfulness, any, any training rooms or anything like that. It's just, it's just right there. And when it happens, it opens up. So I hear you talking about um, uh, people getting to really unpack what was there. And I'm wondering what you think about the fact that in, it depends on the room, but often I'm experiencing there are some people in the room that are so well-versed in the experience of being targeted around their race or their gender. And then there's other people who are saying, do we have to have this conversation? Um, not, not only just does it make me uncomfortable, it's like I actually just don't feel the way this is going to forward us. We're, we're hyper-focusing on identity. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always break across racial and gender lines it's not all sometimes it's some person of color in the space who's saying this is actually not the conversation i'm wanting to have right now it it can really break different ways so i feel that tension in a room where some people are leaning in and that's what they want and others that are actually leaning back and saying i don't know how helpful this is and that polarity seems to be happening in rooms but then also politically when we get to larger systemic levels of how this is playing out in more of a national politic yeah. So I'm wondering if, if there's any way you could talk about that, that what feels like such a deep polarity 
Mm-hmm. And either the frame that you have here yeah. about how to work with it, because it just feels so up. Yeah, that's a, thank you. Um, I should have said maybe a little bit more about the frame uh, for that particular engagement. It was specifically a session devoted to bringing mindfulness to race and racism, um, which all the members of that particular training opportunity had um, agreed to participate in. You know, there had been some preliminary kind of reading about the topic. So so this this wasn't just a general session where all of a sudden I brought in race and invited people to turn toward it, but um, but a session that had been framed and, and where people had been um, prepared and invited to prepare for the work of turning toward race and racism in our present moment. So um, that gives you some sense of one way in which I often frame this, which is to make it explicit. This is what we're going to do in this session. And if you don't think for whatever reason that you are up for this, um, there are many ways to kind of um, uh, uh, invite alterations of the frame or alterations of the space to enable what needs to happen here. Um, this was a group of relatively advanced mindfulness teacher trainees. They'd already been engaged in some work around race. They had been working together and got to know each other to some degree, so they weren't strangers. You know, they had had some relationships among them. So those are the kind. So these are variables that aren't always present, and um, and I do think it's uh, they are variables that variables that make a difference in terms of what can happen in a space. So helpful, and I, if I could just jump in on this. So yeah. it sounds like you had buy-in in some yes, ways from exactly. people. What would you What would you say then for the f- folks? And I think you speak to this in the mm-hmm, book mm-hmm. around who who don't necessarily have, have that buy-in and say, I don't I don't know how this would actually. Um, <laughs> it's terrible, but it's almost like the <laughs> "what's in it for me" question. I'm thinking primarily of white folks who might be saying, I just don't see why my work here could actually be a part of my mindfulness yeah. practice yeah, or yeah. why I would have a better life. So I'm wondering <laughs> you might speak to those folks too. Right. I couldn't help jump in on yeah, that. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, so, um, hmm. so hmm. because as you pointed out um, just momentarily, racism is always present. Uh, race, racism, dynamics around race, um, are part and parcel, in my view, humbly I'll submit, um, part and parcel of how we formed our sense of ourselves. Um, part and parcel of how we form um, relationships and community. Um, because of the very, very deep way in which um, our history is still present around these issues in the United States and in many other places. Um, it's these, these ideas um, and these ways of, let's say, performing a sense of who we are and constructing community and relationships around those notions of who we are. They're already actually infused with all kinds of things around race. So first is a sort of, um, for, for me to just name, that's a presumption that I bring to this work, that for everyone, despite wherever we are on an arc of development and engagement around our own identity and our own history and the way in which our lives intersect with, you know, um, 
social and cultural histories of long standing. We're all differently situated around bringing awareness to that. And, um, and so part of what you're naming here, I think, comes from that place. Like some of us are just, of course, this is a part of my own life and experience. I'm working on that. And some of us have not seen race and racism as really very much a part of their own or our own experience. So first is to just sort of um, really kind of invite engagement with um, that as a, as a kind of a, 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 as an inquiry. Where are you, where are we um, in relationship to the ideas around race and racial justice? Are we open to looking at how our own lives have been in some way obvious and non-obvious, great or small, uh, infused, inflected with, um, shaped by, constructed by, um, I call them in sociology, we use the phrase projects around race and racism, meaning segregation, meaning the legacies of white supremacy, meaning, um, you know, again, the intersection between race and gender um, that can show up and, you know, what opportunities we've had or haven't had. Um, how have these things helped inform how we identify or are identified by others and the ways that our own walk in life um, is mm, impeded or smoothed, um, privileged or obstructed in some ways by the packaging we carry or the, you know, the way we look and the way we are perceived by others based on that. How willing are we to look at that? Full stop is, a, is it's like a preliminary question <laughs> that I think my work invites us all to, to engage with. This feels like the yeah a big invitation that you're making in the book is saying I've spent my life, my work really unpacking racism, racial justice, and I feel like you have your hand extended in some ways and <laughs> yeah. saying, um, here's my invitation to enter into this. In essential conversation. I, here are some practices that we can be in together. And it's one of the things since I've met you that I've seen you, or I imagine in some ways, and answer is however you want, but you know, navigating, often being in conversation and contact with primarily white communities around mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And that you are there very much um, uh, making this profound invitation into depth around um, people's lives and how work around identity can connect to mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that can be complex at, mm -hmm. at times mm -hmm. of, of um, whose work is it to convince, because I, you know, when I asked <laughs> that question right now, I thought that's also my work mm -hmm. as someone who's white to be in conversations with other white people about, well, why, why actually even, why, why unpack this? Yeah. Um, it's an essential question. So, I, uh, it just makes me wonder about how you, um, as you now are becoming even more public yeah. with this book, how you are thinking about it, navigating it. And, um, yeah, I'll just, that's, that's just, yeah. I just wanted to open that up. This could be, we could talk about this for so right <laughs> yeah. here for months and months. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I just think your naming of, of the invitational aspect of my work is really the critical piece here. It is an invitation into seeing more of what is there to be seen, 
about race in all of our lives. And um, that is a very, very uh, specific kind of inquiry for all of us. And, um, and while it is very specific, specific and unique to all of us, there are patterns. So, and again, that's where the tender openness to complexity needs to come in, right? Because we are a hyper-individualized, uh, you know, kind of community of, of, of mindfulness practitioners, let's say, who have most of us been invited to practice mindfulness in the Western context through this very individualized model. It's a practice that you make a commitment to. You're sitting on that cushion by yourself for your, often in these very instrumental ways, right, the way they've the practices have been off offered in the U.S., for example, very much uh, in the context, let's say, of helping work with mental or um, cognitive challenges, right? So in a psychological frame, like mindfulness can help you with, you know, depression or with anxiety as one doorway in for some huge communities of people. Or in a more academic or professional setting, mindfulness can help you with focusing and concentrating and you know, maximizing even effectiveness, right? Um, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor, or, you know, in terms of your being able to stay on and move through the world of, you know, stressful engagement in a way that um, is, leads to your own self-mastery. So there are all these invitations into mindfulness that are highly instrumental and, and also highly individualized. And, you know, so therefore... <laughs> coming into the practice uh, is for some people already just about, um, you know, trying to, you know, move from where I am to some sort of um, uh, more useful state. It's not necessarily about looking at things that I, where I'm really going to have to dig into pain and suffering. In fact, it's trying to figure out, yeah, I may have to look at it a little bit, but really mindfulness has been offered by many as a way of kind of moving out of suffering. And so there's a little bit of just tension there insofar as I'm saying, this is an invitation to actually turn toward an aspect of our our lives. First, that's not just individual, but social, right? So shifting from a highly individualized model for what we mean by mindfulness into a much more interpersonal and social way of thinking about what mindfulness is, way of thinking about who we are as you know, practitioners of mindfulness and people who are moving through the world mindfully. It's a social practice. Um, but also, th again, that piece about like, and it's meant to help us not just kind of move from a particular moment of distress that might show up into uh, eat more ease, but actually as we develop the capacity to deal with distress as, a, as it arises, the invitation opens up into how robust and and how much capacity do we have to actually turn toward suffering that we actually haven't been seeing, right? And actually sit with that and develop um, deeper capacity to be, uh, to be more, I would say, engaged with deeper integrity around these aspects that are in our lives and that we are in some ways participating in, but haven't spent often time looking at. I so appreciate you bringing this in. And this is where you and I, I think have had some connection around trauma, racial justice, mindfulness is realizing at some point that the way that I had been taught to think about trauma was 
almost exclusively is this individual tragedy and something that happened. And, and that's, there's some truth in the fact yes. that trauma is something that can happen to an individual. It is a tragedy. And then there's, there's these many, many layers of a social context in that moment that may be seen or unseen. Yeah. And so I hear you really, um, to me, you're someone who's making these explicit connections between personal and social change. And that's, it's a massive change that you're speaking to here around yeah. more of a collective practice. Yeah. And, and what, where I'm curious where you, if there are any places that um, either communities or um, uh, particular experiences you've had where you see this being done mm-hmm. inside of a more individualistic context, but, 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 but more of a we happening in practice. Mm-hmm. Is that, um, yes. yeah. Yeah, so there are um, folks mm, who are really trying to advance a kind of a we interpersonal, social, collective, mindfulness um, practice and set of practice commitments. Um, and it's not only, it's not a, not only a kind of a new phenomenon in phenomenon in America or in the, in the Western mindfulness world. I think if you really look at the history of, you know, the traditional practices that we've interpreted and, and frankly borrowed from to enable what we call mindfulness in the West, um, historically, um, they've all been heavily embedded in community. I mean, so what we call mindfulness here and what we've extracted in the ways that we do in the neoliberal moment that we live in, we're constantly, you know, taking practices out of other contexts and um, packaging them for our delivery and uptake here. This is, you know, I mean, we can have a whole conversation about that and the ethics of that and the challenges around that. And I'm sure you are having conversations like that with others on these podcasts. Um, but sort of the bracket that for a moment, but just to name that what we're talking about sits in that in that arena, right? Where um, we are, you know, this, this thing that we're calling mindfulness is kind of an intercultural um, phenomenon. Um, and if we look at the countries and cultures uh, of origin and the the sort of traditions that we from which we derive these practices we see a lot of community or social engagement at its core I mean if you look at the teachings for example I mean again not to say that mindfulness is is exclusive as we are might be talking about it here um, not to say it is is exclusively an interpretation or secularization of, of Buddhist some forms of Buddhist teachings, but it is heavily, in many ways, um, a secularization of forms of the teachings of, of that have been handed down through history as the teachings of the historical Buddha. Um, if you look at those teachings, you see a lot of um, teachings about the interpersonal aspects of mindfulness. So just to say that, like, the fact that we have to bring it, bring in the interpersonal and social is itself just a kind of a, a manifestation of a kind of cultural leaning, hyper-individualized, um, often infused with the way of engaging information and practice that is more commonly consistent with whiteness and with white maleness, which shouldn't surprise us because most of the Western interpreters of mindfulness uh, that are most, you know, valued, 
right? Teachers of mindfulness, the people who have created these practices and mostly delivered them into the United States. I'm talking about John Kabat-Zinn and Jack Kornfield and, you know, um, Joseph Goldstein and all, you know, there are women in that, but um, often the interpreters of mindfulness, the historical uh, contemporary, if you will, um, interpreters of mindfulness, the, those responsible for the secularization of it, themselves come from, in some way, a white or male identity-based background. So it should not surprise us then, the, and, they're, and they're interpreting it in, in a context that is uh, heavily selects for hyper-individualized ways of engaging in the world. And yeah. So these practices, which have always been about community and social engagement, actually, um, and have been, and at the same time, have had to be um, delivered through uh, and across the millennia, across generations, in contexts where the environment has not always enabled or allowed a robust engagement with questions of, let's say, challenging power let's say, um, uh, disrupting patterns of oppression. Uh, the parts of the, the, the traditional practices that might have amplified what we in this country and culture and time might call justice um, have not always been allowed to, to live. Like each culture that has helped, um, if you will, deliver these practices to the present day has had its own history of embeddedness in time and place and oppression dynamics as well. So uh, that is a, a way of just pointing toward uh, the aspect of, um, of this work that is, that is about recognizing that, you know, th there's a sociology and anthropology of what we are doing, right? We, you know, what we're doing is embedded in a social context always and forever. And so, um, given that most of the people who have taught us these practices are, um, you know, coming into it in the time and place that we're in where these demands for our individual as opposed to collective and communal approach are so, so up. Um, it does, it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise any of us that um, we find ourselves like struggling to say like, oh, well, where can we bring community back in? Where can we bring the social back in? Um, but so that said, there are, you know, community-engaged mindfulness um, teacher training programs. Um, I've worked with Fleet Mall, for example, as one individual and one um, teacher who's got a whole training program um, that has been, you know, shaped around these questions of engagement for social justice. Um, and there are, there are others on the horizon who are, in, involved in that but I but I but I so I find it just so I smile when I think about this because I'm just like here we are um, doing the best we can in the time that we find ourselves in where everything that we're talking about is kind of infused in a culture of hyper individualism and we are uh, kind of working with that as best we can those of us who who see a communal dimension a social dimension are up against a culture that's constantly not wanting us to necessarily to bring that in. Mm -hmm. That's great. You know, speaking of this moment mm -hmm. and um, tensions, there's one more, we, we've touched on it, but I really would like to take just one more yeah. path with you on it. It has to do with actually a story with y you and myself being in South Africa yeah. when we were there, what was it, maybe four months ago. Yeah. Um, 
so we were there for a, a mindfulness conference in South Africa. And I think, uh, I, I know that at least um, when the person who, or the team that was doing the conference reached out to me, they said, listen, if we're doing a mindfulness conference in South Africa, we, can, we can't not talk about, we, we must talk about trauma. We also must be talking about racial justice. Yes. So we both, this is how, in many ways how we met. Mm-hmm. And we were at a place in South Africa called the Cradle of Humankind. Yeah. <laughs> was it Maropa? Was that the name of? Yes. I'm trying to remember the name of the center. Yeah. Uh, Mar- oh, Maropang. 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 That's it. So uh, the reason I'm telling this story is so mm-hmm. I, I, my memory is that we get down into this first day and there's a huge stencil. It's an amazing uh, geological site, which has some of the oldest hominid skeletons ever found. And But there's this massive stencil that basically says, we are one. Mm-hmm. We are one human race mm-hmm. and welcome home. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that and thinking, okay, wow. So this is the kickoff. And that was a big theme inside of that conference mm-hmm. was around a shared humanity. Yes. This moment around um, an environmental crisis potentially looming right here. Like wh- where our, our oneness and shared humanity. Then yeah. at the same time, what feels like a contradiction sometimes is um, the, the necessity and the importance of deepening into identity and having real conversations about the fact that we're targeted differently based on identity. I mean, in trauma, this is trying to unpack this in the book, is that groups of people will be impacted, will, will often experience different traumas based on their identities. Yeah. So I'm just, so this tension to me of um, the truth is that we're all one, the reality is we're impacted uh, differently mm-hmm. based on who we are and that groups can can kind of, attack and move in different ways. And my experience is that more white mindfulness communities mm-hmm. have tended towards more of the universal, more of mm-hmm. the we're one. Yeah. And I see you really, I think, navigating this very skillfully um, on many different fronts. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about how you think about this or it, to me, it's also really in the moment right now yes. of the conversation. And so how do you yeah. work with this? Yeah, and I'm so curious to hear your thoughts on this too, because again, it's in the moment, it's in this conversation, it's in it for us, um, in our work, in our different ways of engaging this work. Um, so, I maybe I should just say that there's no short answer to what you're just naming, right? right. And that's one of the reasons why, for me, this is fully a path of mindfulness, right, right? right? I mean, this is to me, I think of people like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Gregory Kramer who has created Insight Dialogue, right? Uh, he's a uh, Buddhist uh, monk, frankly, who has created this sort of beautiful kind of secular offering of mindful communication called Insight Dialogue, which he sees as um, a complete and entire way of thinking about mindfulness or translating, if you will, Buddhist practice through the lens of interpersonal communication. It's all here. You can do your entire path of mindful engagement in the world through how we communicate with each other. I have a similar view about um, this work of racial identity and engagement around identity generally as being a complete path of what we call mindfulness. It's not maybe, in my view, a side thing that we might turn toward every once in a while if we're interested. It is the entire way that we might uh, see ourselves more clearly, see the way we've, um, we, we suffer, 
the particular ways that suffering shows up for us personally um, in terms of how we construct the notions of ourself and where we're too small or our, where our ego gets in the way, whatever, all those different things have some identity, a lot of identity stuff infused in that. We, we can sit with that. We can learn more about it just on that cushion, noticing what arises, where we struggle, who, we are, who is that person sitting on the cushion. And that has some interpersonal and obviously systemic pieces of it or to it. Um, the communities that we pra- where we practice in the West have been, as, you, as we've said, typically, again, constructed through the frame of whiteness. And so this idea of, well, I mean, whiteness for many, and I'll, I'm curious your thoughts on this piece, is an invitation to kind of be in the world in which looking at race is optional, right? Because it's the dominant, as, as many people who talk about race and white privilege and the scholars around that who have helped us understand the experience of whiteness a bit more. Again, it's a racialization. It's a way of being in the world in which um, this thing called whiteness is, is, um, is seen as the norm so much so that we compare it to like the water that a fish swims in. The fish isn't really that aware of water as such unless and until it somehow gets, is drawn out of it. And suddenly it's like, oh wait, I was in this entire context where um, I could breathe and I could swim and I could uh, move without any, um, very easily without even knowing it was there. So that kind of um, what some of the scholars in whiteness call transparency of the white experience. Is, is everywhere, but it's nowhere in my specific consciousness. That um, dovetails really well, if you will, in ways that can be, um, that need to be unpacked and can be problematic with mindful um, kind of um, languaging around mm, emptiness, right? The sense of there is no real self, right? These very profound teachings in mindfulness around um, letting go of notions of identity and evolving into this place where we're kind of just beyond all of that. And that is such a beautiful um, aspect of what mindful awareness, I think, invites in all of us. This kind of um, engagement with the ways that we've constructed a sense of ourselves that is limited, if you will, or that is uh, maybe you might say uh, that misses some aspects. That's sort of how I think of it. We've in um, engaging with ourselves in ways that are around identity for this time and place, for this culture that we're in right now, right? Where identities have been created. They're part of our social world. Um, they're part of what we confront when we leave this space, right? We get on the streets of San Francisco or New York or wherever we are, we're being met with other human beings who look at us and perceive us through the language and, and, and lenses of identity. It's inevitable. So on the one hand, right, we're talking about moving through the world um, on this relative social plane, right? It's just part of life. It's part of what is real. Um, it is, and it is really, really quite real. It means that if you and I walk into a, a space where, um, where, for example, we might... Uh, ask for service or ask for support because of the ways in which um, bias shows up, you know, may show up 
uh, in the eye of the beholder or the person we might be seeking support from. I might be met in a way that would be different for how you're met, whether we're shopping for a car or trying to get an apartment or trying to get a loan, whatever it is. We all know the statistics bear this out, that race and gender impact how we're met around those kinds of social realities. So this is all very, very real. And yet with mindfulness, we're invited to kind of see and recognize that um, that the, the sort of illusory nature, na- illusory, uh, nature of these aspects of our lives, that they're, so that they're real, but not, this is how I see it, they're real, but they're not the whole story. And to me, that's really the challenge to see that it's not to say that they're not real, and therefore, we don't need to look at them. But to say that they are real, they're very real in, in terms of having uh, impacts on, the, you know, our lives every day. And there's much more to what it means to be here now and alive and much more that we can bring to how we live if we are aware of not just the social plane that we operate on, but the kind of more than social world that is always present. Um, And also the way that we participate in constructing things like race and gender. Um, I'll say that in some of the trainings that I do, people sometimes at a certain point, especially those who have been engaged in this kind of work, who have done some work, if you will, around race and identity, at a certain point, I've had people come up to me and say, you, people talk about race as a construction. You, what you're doing with us here is helping us actually see what that looks like and actually imagine or practice deconstructing it in real time. So it becomes not just this conceptual idea that we construct identity in the social realm that I've been speaking about, and we we construct it and then we play out all of these projects around who gets privileged and who gets discriminated against and all that, all social. Mindful engagement with that is is a way of first recognizing that we are we are we play a role in this, and this is being done in a sense, quote unquote, to us, whether we appreciate it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not and then inviting really some kind of proactive agency around it for the future that's the deconstruction part in the direction of minimizing our own and others suffering and so to me that's the that's the that's the like what's in it for all of us because there actually is suffering that we're that is um that i in my own experience and my experience with others we're all suffering in different ways around this stuff it's not obvious how we're suffering often. And sometimes it is. You know, when they're putting kids in cages and when they're pulling guns disproportionately on young black and brown men for breathing or walking or being in certain spaces um, and, and, you know, disproportionately pulling firepower and long guns, et cetera, on differently racialized and gender bodies in the world and that's happening with a certain frequency with some people and not with others that's real that's the rubber of these ideas meeting the road of conscious experience in the world in ways that make for trauma and so what is our response to that how does mindful um, engagement with our own constructedness and the way in which we participate in constructing a sense of ourselves and, you know, navigating a world where we're being rewarded for maintaining some of these ideas 
that that perpetuate racism and sexism, et cetera, et cetera. How do we engage with that? Do we want to sort of just do our part to quietly maintain the status quo? Or do we want to actually make the world a little bit less oppressive for for those who are targets of oppression, for ourselves and for others? That's, that's to me, the, um, the kind of ethics piece that is at the core of how I see this is all about mindfulness. You know, you, it's mindfulness for what? It's to relieve our own suffering, but also the suffering that we see and that we participate in as social creatures in the world. And that's the part that, um, you know, again, some of us have to do this because this is our lives. We are suffering. Our children are suffering. These guns are being pointed at us and our loved ones. Our children are being disproportionately processed at borders in ways that are disrespectful and dehumanizing. Um, so we can't wait. Like, we're going to be, we're in this. And so for those of us who are suffering right on the front lines, these practices are helping us literally to survive or can. And for those who are not on the front line, it's an ethical question. Once you see that these are dynamics that are not just have been created by others, but we are participating in, we're benefiting from in ways that are not obvious, we are acquiescing to, we are helping maintain in some ways by our silences, by our unwillingness to be engaged. Is that who you want to be? Is that how you want to be? And that's the real invitation of the work that I do. I think that's a that's a powerful segue into the last question that I had you know, written down here, <laughs> which is to ask you to um, really division and say, what do you see as the best case scenario um, inside of not just your, the book project per se, mm-hmm. but you know around what seems like a moment of more integration of racial justice work into the mindfulness community. Mm-hmm. What would you, and I know, you know, we were talking about, um, uh, Brian Stevenson, mm-hmm. someone doing, uh, really visionary work, I think. And, yeah. and to me, planting seeds that will likely go much past his lifetime and our yeah. lifetimes. So I'm just wondering if you, if I, if you just had some time here to really vision of, what you'd see is both the impact that this work is making and also where we we could go, you know, where. Where could it go? So healing, peacemaking, and doing justice are all to me part and parcel of the same. I mean, they're healing the wounds personally, interpersonally, communally, right? The suffering that we can feel in our own bodies, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, um, so healing is a big part of how I, the vision that I hold. Um, making peace is, a, to me, an aspect of the healing, but also its own separate project, right? The inter-R. Healing and making peace, um, knowing that, again, there's so many ways that we're, we struggle through conflictedness around race and racism, feeling the woundedness and feeling like projects for um, redress, um, addressing the grievances, the legitimate, you know, ways that we want to, we want to see this, uh, these wrongs righted. So making peace within ourselves, within our communities, with each other, and I don't mean this in the Pollyanna way, 
What are the inputs of, inputs of peace? Um, that's where justice can come in, right? We, the no justice, no peace mantra is a real one. And I think people like Brian Stevenson, whose um, work has inspired me and, um, you know, with whom I've been engaged uh, in, in a kind of a broad community of those who are trying to transform justice um, directly and indirectly for years and years. We met when I was in law school. We had the privilege, privilege of meeting through a mutual friend who brought him to our campus all those, actually decades, a couple decades ago um, in Virginia, where he was just starting out with his beautiful work um, to, to bring a kind of a, you know, commitment to racial justice, literally in the hardest place in the justice system, I think, death penalty work. And the work that he's done to both, on the one hand, really save the lives of people who have been unfairly condemned to death, but the profound work of then seeing interconnected systems, seeing how that system is deeply infused with these histories of white supremacy and um, the normalization of dehumanizing black and brown bodies that is a legacy of white supremacy. And once you see the links between those things, his work as a death penalty lawyer is, of course, is a doorway, get, creates opportunities to more deeply look at how it is that we, in creating systems of white supremacy and, and um, black dehumanization, um, have created systems of death, of normalizing, um, cheapening of life, um, that are patterned around race. And so I see myself as being in a literal conversation with Brian. He and I have emailed about my book project just recently, and um, I hope that we will continue in some ways to, to kind of make connections between our work because I see um, this work of bringing mindfulness into conscious engagement with racial justice as really just being a part of what it, takes to actually reconstruct the world. Um, the world could be otherwise, to borrow a bit of the title of one of my teachers, Norman Fisher, has a new book on mindfulness, you know, that it gets us thinking about how, the, yes, in fact, the world could be otherwise. <laughs> um, it could be otherwise, but it won't be otherwise unless we act. Um, this idea that Martin Luther King helped amplify in his beautiful uh, writings and oratory, you know, that the moral arc of the universe is, is long, but it bends towards justice. I'm one of those people, not alone, but I'm certainly one who's often said, it bends because we bend it, right? So just seeing that we have work to do to make the world a better place, to make it a more just place, um, and not seeing that as somehow at odds with mindfulness's call for accepting reality as it is and being with what is. Yes, we want to be more able to kind of be with what is and see um, the things that we, we cannot see from our more limited perspective on where the suffering is. Mindfulness is an invitation to see more of the whole. But I do believe that the deep call of mindfulness to address suffering and to, um, to be engaged in life-affirming ways of being with each other, that to me creates um, 
an unparalleled, but also ever-present, like right here, right now, always, forever, set of opportunities, innumerable opportunities for for healing, for peacemaking, and for doing racial justice in ways that recreate the world. So yeah, my vision is um, that our children don't suffer what we see every day, right? And therefore, you know, can live, can thrive, can be with each other, can love who they love um, in ways that um, we still are struggling with. We see it in our news every day. We see it on the streets every day. I, my hope is that the work that I've been called to do can be just a little bit of a hand of support. I know you so beautifully, David, talk about trauma-sensitive work and trauma-sensitive mindfulness as being like that hand of supportive holding of where we are right now, but to what end? In the direction of healing. Personally, yes, but also healing our communities. And so that's that's my vision for all of this work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was going to end with this, or so, but anything, anything else, any areas that we didn't cover or anything that you'd want to say that you're um, fired yeah. up about? Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, this, this is real tension here. I feel it in my body as I talk about this. Um, this tension of like recognizing that racism is real, that injuries around identities are real, um, and that there's freedom from that. Like we can, we can come together in ways that, that don't just constantly perpetuate um, these cycles of violence. We literally can do this, um, and um, and yet doing it is not is is not easy. It's not gonna be easy. It's it never is easy, and so I I think um, you know there's a little bit of 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 part of the challenge for me in this work is that, um, you know, I know I'm the person who comes in with this sort of velvet, uh, like, it's not a hammer, <laughs> but it's hard. It's like a, it's a kind of a, I want to, to kind of in, engage in, in some, some tough work. And I, but I want, but I do it from a place of real love. For me, it's, you know, I'm reminded of Colin Kaepernick who recently in some of his descriptions of why he does what he does we resist we do justice out of love it's love not only for those who are right at the the business end of injustice who are literally again feeling the the boot of the foot of oppression on our necks it's not just love for those but it is love for those because no every all of us deserve freedom from these injustices right all of us deserve to live um, without fear of being harmed because of who we are in the world. Like we just profoundly deserve that. Um, And to make it possible that we can live that way is gonna require more of all of us. And that's not easy, it's not an easy thing to ask. It's not an easy thing for people to do. And so in my work I experience actually a lot of disappointment. There is a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of fragility, that term that we've become a little more familiar with, the kind of um, dissonance and reactivity that comes with 
being asked to kind of go deeper, see more of what there is to be seen, do more to confront injustice in our midst. Um, And so being the person who kind of creates spaces where we can turn toward these things has been its own challenge for me because I, you know, I am both a joy junkie, like I love human beings and I love being together in a place of potential impossibility with other people and of, you know, the heartful, like rich appreciation of what is good and what is, um, you know, what's happening that we can amplify and shine a bright light on. I want to stay in that space. And so, and at the same time, I know that doing the work that I'm called to do around this issue that I feel we as human beings in this moment have to be doing with the rise of white supremacy and all of that happening around us. If we're going to do it, we have to kind of um, get over the addiction to just feeling good. You know, we got to get over the addiction to being comfortable because it's in those places of just like easing ourselves back into comfort that we reinforce the patterns of um, the the sort of silent recapitulation and reconstruction of oppression that is, um, you know, the resegregation of our communities, our schools, that is, you know, the the acquiescence to racialized, dehumanizing policing that we can see all over the place. Yeah. Because you raised it around fragility, I'd love to um, have you go a little deeper here if possible. And I've been, if I have it right, it's Robin DiAngelo. Mm -hmm. Is that right? For white, white, talking Mm -hmm. for those who don't know, it's called white fragility. And it's really a a whole body of work about what happens for folks that are white mm-hmm. inside of conversations around race and this idea of fragility that they can't actually, there's a certain, I don't know, what word would you use here? Um, uh, I guess ability to mm-hmm. really, or robustness. Yeah, stamina. Stamina to stay, to, right, mm-hmm. to stay in. To stay in it. And, and so I, I've, when I've heard her speak and I really mm-hmm. resonate with dynamics that I've seen and I really hear you about the disappointment mm-hmm. at, at lands. And if you want to unpack that more, I'd mm-hmm. love to hear. And then through the lens of trauma, when I think about uh, folks that are experiencing trauma, if they are white, if they have a, uh, if they're struggling with trauma or have a history of trauma, they might end up having a a narrow bandwidth by which they can experience sensation, arousal, and reactivation. That's true. And so I'm trying, it's a, it's a tension point for me of, Mm -hmm. to me, some of the trauma sensitive practices are to support people in more privileged positions Mm -hmm. to be able to stay with the uncomfortable conversation that you're talking about and to still give room for folks that they're going to hit their edges because of their own trauma history anyway and i just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on it or how you how you speak about it so true all of it right you know so we resonate so deeply i think the two of us around um sensitivity uh to what is called for and what um you know, what, again, ethically we believe we, sh- we might do around all of this to, right, both create places where stamina can be built, capability can be built, we can, we can heal, we can work more effectively at our edges, but to do so in ways that don't re, you know, re- reinscribe or 
create more trauma for people. That's, that's really difficult. That's why we typically don't just open up the intro to mindfulness class right here. <laughs> you got to build up some capacities for self-compassion, for compassion with each other, um, for holding ourselves with a lot of love. And to, this is another reason why I see this as the life path. Because um, healing for many of us, I mean, it can happen. Healing can happen, you know, and how defined healing varies. But um, it can happen instantaneously for some maybe, but it's often the thing that happens over time. I think working with our trauma um, histories and the way in which the the fact, however privileged we might be around race, whatever our particular experiences of this, we are human beings with a whole history of our own wounds, our own sufferings. And by the way, I want to name that for me, fragility happens. Not it's it, there's something to the pattern around white fragility that Robin D'Angelo and others are namings in ways that I think are helpful. But I want to name that fragility happens as a, as a result of conditionings through various different identity um, experiences. So it isn't only whites who are fragile when it comes to talking about race, let's just say. Um, I've seen all kinds of fragility re re reactions from differently situated people, differently racialized people, for whom turning toward this experience does create a kind of reactivity against like maybe those of us say of color who somehow survived and managed to succeed if you will on the terms of a white supremacist culture a male supremacist whatever that culture is those of us who've made it and are of color sometimes also react in ways that look a lot like fertility like i don't necessarily what i I've gotten over this kind of stuff and I don't want to turn toward it now. And I, you know, so, so I think there's a whole conversation to be had about, about fragility as it manifests in many, many different experiences and backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, um, the invitation of our work, mine and yours, I think, is really about helping all of us who are, privileged to do the kinds of work that we're doing to create spaces where people can, you know, kind of see things more fully and develop their capacities to heal, et cetera, be with these issues. There's just a lot of different, um, different pathways to more skillful means for this that we all need to be with humility seeking to explore within ourselves and within our organizations. Um, we need to be more mindful of the need for caucusing, if you will, around identities when that's called for. So spaces where, let's say, white racialized people or African-American people or LGBTQ and, and people of different identity backgrounds can come together and feel maybe a little bit more safety so that these conversations can be had in ways that minimize re-triggering. Um, but even that work requires a heck of a lot of skillfulness um, because the way in which we invite people into so-called identity or heritage-based spaces can be its own, can create its own moment of triggering of harm for people.
So, so much um, work is left to be done. We are, I feel, just on the, we're just on the beginning here, just on the precipice of beginning how to do, with the work of how to do this, this work well, and both to build up resilience and, and stamina and capacity, but to do that in ways that, um, that, that don't re, um, reiterate um, or reconstruct patterns of harm and oppression. It's, we're right at the edge of how to do this. And so I appreciate any thoughts you have on this too as we go. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I think this is core to trauma work actually mm-hmm. is that we need both clear seeing, m- mind, mindfulness, the ability to know what's happening, when it's happening, and that there's an equally important wing, you could say, around practices of, well, you talked about joy, practices of resilience, mm-hmm. practices of um, connection with oneself, with others. Yeah. And that if we go too heavy, if you know, we individually or if a community goes tax too hard into mm-hmm. just bare mindfulness mm-hmm. without the the resource, you could say, of other practices, we actually don't get to go as deep as we might. That's really, the, this to me, the punchline of so much mm-hmm. trauma work is you don't start any kind of work around trauma by saying, tell me all about your trauma. Yeah. We don't start with what's going to potentially overwhelm people. We actually want to start with the question, well, what's working for yeah. them? What can buoy them or this community up? But again, this is the, to me, that's the key is it's not to skip over inequities not to bypass exactly it is not to bypass which you talk about beautifully in the book mm-hmm. it's actually about building the capacity exactly. to go deeper exactly which is what we need exactly yeah and thank you for saying that that explicitly because again that is so much a part of what i see as being again the invitation in the rub how do we create these spaces that are frankly from my perspective i'm gonna put it this way deeply infused with love deeply infused with compassionate holding by which i mean the will to stay with each other in our struggles, whatever they look like. Um, and my struggle is going to be different from yours. And for me to hold the space for your struggle might be hard for me, given that I'm, you know, from my vantage point, so need, so in need, let's say, of somebody to see and hear me. Can I, can I work at all these different edges at once? Um, in these interpersonal spaces where we might come together to do this work. And um, naming that what we're trying to do is create spaces for holding that are safe enough and brave enough that require a lot of care and, and therefore require that we start with a lot of care for ourselves, building the capacity for care within our groups, our spaces. But that we're doing that because it is the most skillful means that I've seen for being that, allowing ourselves to bridge our way into a broader window of tolerance for the difficult, to use the language that you and Dan Siegel and others, right, so beautifully help us kind of incorporate into this work. There's a, there is, we do as human beings, you know, my heart is right now like the gesture of like, God bless us, right? I'm from the South. That's what comes up. Like we suffer. We are suffering. And there's like a, 
at the core of my work and my approach to this is like, do no harm, wanting to do no harm. Of course, I know I might and will, but my I, uh, my commitment is to try to support growing in the in around all of this in ways that that in the effort to grow as much as we can do, we're doing that without creating further harm. So it is about creating spaces where we can feel our care and concern for each other and feel that there is some nurturing happening here. And from that place, have a little bit more openness to um, what, what needs to be healed, what needs to be righted, what needs to be corrected in ourselves and in the world around us. And so it's that path of like this dual um, creation of joyful, holding and compassionate being with each other, loving, healing, right? Loving, I use somehow the phrase lovingly witnessing um, who we are, where we are, uh, with all of this being in service of making the world more just. And so, right, there's a way in which we kind of sometimes feel like, but we can't start with love because we're not going to get to, right? Or I'm so angry that get start with love feels like a Pollyanna crazy nonsensical thing. It sounds sound, sounds like some bullshit, right? Uh, where, where's the love going to come from when I'm when I'm dealing with white people who have not seen my struggle, let's say, or where's it going to come from when I'm dealing with these people who don't believe I deserve to exist on this planet or in this space or in America, right? All of that is actually happening. And actually, you know, what we might find ourselves confronting. Or even how can I be in a space of love where this person is just blissfully unaware? And I'm just sick of that blissful unawareness. <laughs> I, can't, I can't see one more face that doesn't get it. So there's a lot of, again, mm, the... I say that tender reckon, recognition of where we are as human beings on, on an arc that is part of my work. And that means that, yeah, we're going to maybe want there to be a lot of radical change to happen at the end of a session or end of a weekend. And sometimes there are times when people come up and say, to me, things that sound radical, like before we had the session, and I'll go back to the first example I was thinking of when you asked me to think of an example where I mentioned that gentlemen start talking about being a race trader and people were like whoa what comes up for me there at the end of that particular session a person came up another white racialized man said I just realized through this that whereas in most of my life I've been saying I don't I don't have any experience around racism and I just haven't seen it I've spent most of my adult life saying I don't see any racism and in this session I was able to see in, these, in this last time we spent, I was able to actually see. It's not that I don't see it. It's that I actively resist it. Mm -hmm. I actively turn away from it. Mm -hmm. And to just see that, it doesn't sound like a radical shift. But to me, I could hear that it was a radical shift for this person. Yeah. So, so, so these are the things that I think are possible and in, in, are happening in the work that we do. But that doesn't mean we won't, in the very next moment, find ourselves frustrated doesn't mean we won't in the very next moment be disappointed that we can't go further. And that's why we need so much love for ourselves and for others as we do this work. And I love that you named path. I've, I've heard you just keep, this is going to be path, long-term path for each person, each community in different ways from different locations. Mm -hmm. And I love that you keep bringing it back to path and practice. Yeah. So. And with love. And with love. <laughs> and with love. 
Thanks, Rhonda. Thank you yeah, so much. That feels like um, maybe that's a good place for us to end. Does that feel like right yeah. spot for you? Yeah, I mean, we could say a lot more. Yeah, no but <laughs> We have to bring the conversation to a bit of a close for now. Totally. For now. Well, um, thank you. Thanks for your work. Thanks for being on here and sharing yourself so fully in your vision. And I'm thank excited you. for the, the path ahead. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us for this podcast and special thanks to Rhonda for sitting down for this interview. In the next few months, we're going to have some great guests. I'm going to be interviewing Sam Himmelstein uh, about a book that he just wrote on trauma-sensitive mindfulness specifically for teens. And also Trish Magyari, who is a researcher who's been doing work around trauma and mindfulness programs for a long time. So excited to have her on the podcast as well. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. You can do that through my website or whatever service that you're listening on. And until then, thanks for listening and take care.